my name is Justin, and this is my other life. All of this started as just a side project, but sometimes the side project is the true project. If you want to learn more about my research, writings, or videos, or if you want to find more conversations like this one, check out theotherlifenow.com. And by the way, all of my work is supported by my audience, so huge thanks to all my patrons and to everyone who throws me some support every now and then. But hey, if you get what I'm doing and you're into it, even just a random email would be nice. It's good to hear from people. Or you could certainly leave a review on iTunes. That's really useful because it helps other people find the show. All right. Thanks for agreeing to talk with me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it just kind of happened randomly because I was asking you, because I started another podcast and I was like asking you how you, how you run your stuff. So, you know. Right. How's that coming along? Do you want to tell us about that, by the way? Um, yeah, I mean, it's fine. Uh, I call it like uh, the Brown Pundits Browncast. So I've run this. Um, so I have a primary podcast that's part of my day job uh, as a geneticist. It's called The Insight. Um, that's doing really well. And we have an editor and I have a co well, I mean, my boss is a co host. And so we have guests sometimes. And that's kind of a professionally run thing. I've had a side blog. Um, well, I mean, I have a lot of blogs, actually. <laughs> but um, I have, uh, I've had a side blog for about seven years called Brown Pundits. Uh, it's just like a friend of mine. He's brown. I'm brown, and we just—it's it, all about brown things. It's like all my brown content goes there, and so people have been asking us for a podcast. So I figured, like, okay, I'll just like set it up, learn how to use Audacity. So I asked you, my friend Josiah Neely, whose podcast I was on, the Urbane Cowboys, uh, actually today, they were published today, um, and Brown Pundits podcast. Um, you can find it at brownpundits.com, um, and uh, I put up the first episode on Saturday night. So it was a pretty quick turnaround. Um, it's pretty easy. I'm, I don't know like how much I'm going to do of it, but there's been some demand and like podcasting is the new thing now. So why not? I mean, I've, I've been blogging since 2002. So I've been around in that, in that um, space for a while. And, um, you know, mostly like, I don't, you know, like you, I don't, um, do the writing thing as my thing. You know, it's just, it's something I do for fun. Yeah. You know? yeah. Podcasting is kind of similar. I mean, I do have the professional podcast, but that's a different issue. I saw somewhere uh, someone writing about you that I think referred to you as a semi-professional blogger. Would I mean, I can make, I, I make money off it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, well, I mean, that's not my, I don't get primarily paid to blog. Right. Does that make sense? But I make sure. a non-trivial amount of money through my blogging. That's awesome. So, so doing some blogging is, is part of my regular job as a geneticist at my current position. Um, but I'm not really, that's probably not my primary job. My primary job is to do data analysis and figure out the algorithms and all like the quality assurance, all the regular science stuff. Um, but um, in terms of my blog, I don't monetize it. Um, I have been paid for blogging before. When I was a science blog, Discover and Uns, um, I was paid and then Last year, I got off wounds and just went independent um, because I just, I just want to do my own thing and not be stuck with other people's platforms and their views and their technical support, which yeah. was on their you know terms. So I like because I, I have technical skills myself. So I decided to like resurrect my old gene expression site. But yeah, I mean, I think you can say semi-professional blogger, but it's more of a uh, side hustle. Yeah, I hear you. I mean, I mean, I'm a semi-professional semi YouTuber. I think I make like about five dollars a month. I think it's five dollars a month. Yeah, I don't know. Semi a semi-professional YouTuber. I don't know if that's the optimal position. I think being a professional YouTuber or just do it for shits and giggles. Yeah, you know, it's like those are kind of like you kind of want to go towards the two. I would think, but I don't know. Um, I'm a, 
I'm, I'm, I'm frankly a little skeptical of YouTube, but um, I'm trying it out a little. Um, I've done a couple of YouTube videos myself, but it's really not my forum. Like, I'm pretty good at writing, I think. Um, not to be conceited, but I mean, I've just done it for a while. So I can do that fast, and it's relatively dense. Um, YouTube seems to have a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, traffic, a lot of views, but I'm wondering about how permanent it will be. So I've written, um, I don't know, I've written like over 5 million words, you know? Um, and I'm, I can tell you, like, not bragging, but I've had, like, you know, tens of millions of people, like, read my blogs. Mm -hmm. So that's had an impact. Now, if I did a YouTube, I probably have, uh, I could, you know, I don't, you know, like, I'm not, um, there's certain YouTubers where it's like, they have the optics to do YouTube. You know what I'm saying? Uh -huh. Like, Lauren Southern can do YouTube. Um, I hear so they're going to get a lot of views, but I don't really know what impact they're having over the long term. Because I know when I watch YouTube sometimes, it's always when I'm doing something else. And I don't really watch it. I'm just kind of half paying attention to it. Um, when you're reading something, you kind of go serial in a serial manner. You focus on it. You don't, you know? Yeah. And so, that, I mean, that's, um, that's my main skepticism about YouTube. I mean, it, that affects podcasting a little. But um, I think when you're listening, that's, a, that's somewhat of a different um, way of taking the data in. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I don't have it so planned out. I think that for me, I'm kind of experimenting with all possibilities because I think right now I'm just really attracted to, to the possibility of somehow carving out a kind of alternative intellectual life, a different type of intellectual life as an alternative sure. to academia. And I don't know exactly how that would optimally look, but my attitude right now is kind of like, I'll just do YouTube a certain amount of times every week and I'll do, I'll write blogs a certain amount of time every week and I'll just do all of these things to some degree mm -hmm. and just watch and just wait and see and watch what, watch what uh, has the most influence and watch what takes off, see what maybe people might be willing to pay for and just have an open-minded experimental attitude towards it. Yeah. I mean, that's the dream. I mean, honestly, I was in academia. I was a graduate student studying genetics for a while and um, I realized by the end of it that it, academic route wasn't going to work for me. I mean, I have a pretty non-conventional personality. I'm also very, uh, I don't know, forthright. It might be a little self-flattering, but um, I'm, I'm quite in your face. Um, that can be a little difficult um, to manage in academia where you have to kind of, you know, uh, it's very prim and proper in its own ways. Uh, so, um, but I mean, I still read books. Like I just bought a book on Frederick the Great, you know, um, finished a book on trade in the Eastern Roman Empire and, and Asia. And I'm doing some data analysis, you know, trying to work on maybe like get a preprint out on some genetic stuff. So, um, so are you mostly doing freelance stuff for different places and, or you, have, you work with one company in particular? Uh, for what? For, for, well, it, it sounds like from everything you just said, you have lots of, it sounds like you do lots of things and a bunch mm -hmm. of different things bring different income streams. Yeah. What is your main thing right now? I, I'm, a, I'm a geneticist at a startup, a personal genomic startup in Austin called Insight Home. Okay, cool. And previously, uh, previously, I had worked as a, uh, as a scientist, um, uh, content developer, you know, um, staff scientist at a company called Embark, which was uh, Doggy DNA. Um, 23 Me for Dogs, also in Austin. And before that, I was a graduate student at UC Davis. Uh, but I've done consulting for Family Tree DNA, for National Geographic, um, on their genetics um, ap applications and platforms. And I do, I do uh, like in terms of my freelance stuff, um, outside of my you know primary job, um, I do some writing for National Review. Um, I do, I've written for India Today recently. The way the writing usually works out is I've let it approach me because, I mean, one, let's be frank, it doesn't pay. Mm -hmm. um, I do it um, 
Maybe I just gotta be chat one second. Yeah, take time. Uh, yeah. Okay, I'm gonna close that. Anyway, um, so um, yeah, the issue with the writing is um, I kind of think of that as a uh, public service. Right. So when I wrote when I wrote um, when I wrote an article on the genetics of India, like last year, I wrote a cover story, I think, for India Today, which is like a pretty big magazine in India. Um, so, I mean, I got paid, but it wasn't that much. I mean, compared to the you know per hour, what I make in my regular job, you know, but I just thought, well, you know, someone should write about this. And a lot of people in India are scared to talk about it because of political controversies. And I don't live in India, so I don't care, mm. you know, so I'll just say it. And so um, I have a pretty good relationship with the editor there. At National Review, um, you know, I'm friends with some of the people there, and so I will review books. Like, I'm going to review Robert Plowman's book um, on, um, like, DNA Blueprint or something, the new book on behavior genetics. I'm going to review that. I'm getting a review copy. I reviewed David Reich's book, um, reviewed a book on universities, reviewed Carl Zimmer's book. So um, I, I kind of do that just because, you know, um, I, I like having my own blog and control my own means of production, but sometimes mm -hmm. it's nice to get out of that little box, you know? But I'm sure you find that even though your blog is only somewhat monetized, like the fact that it brings even a little bit of change each month, like that helps you, that helps motivate you, doesn't it? Um, it does. Um, I can tell you what I do. Um, I mean, I'll pre I'm pretty open about this uh, it, because um, sure, I do, I'd be curious to know. Sure. I, I have, I don't do like, I have a Patreon account mostly because like um, I donate to a couple of things, you know, um, and I don't solicit that because I don't really want to be dependent on other people. Um, yeah. But I mean, I write just to write, just to get words out there. I obviously have an issue. I mean, I have three kids, like I'm kind of busy right now <laughs> with life. So I might shut down, who knows? But um, I have uh, Amazon affiliates. Yeah. And it's totally passive. And uh, I've been making a lot of money, not a lot, but I've been making like a non-trivial amount of money that way passively for, for, for well over a decade, since 2004, yeah. you know? Yeah. And one thing uh, that I noticed is, um, you know, over Christmas, there's going to be some people buying computers, <laughs> yeah. you know, and if they click through to read, to check a book from right. a book review and then they buy a computer, I get money from that. Right? right. And so I found that that's been like one of the best ways um, to do it passively without bothering um, the users and, and reducing the, uh, just like the, the friction of it, you know, to get yourself, you know, I mean, like, so when I've I was set, younger, I set it up too. I just don't. Yeah. I don't. I don't push it too hard. Like I don't write about books quite as much as maybe I could. But uh, yeah. Well, I mean, the issue is like if you, you know, if I write about something, I will always, I, I will cross promote it with a book I've read. Sure. You know, and it's like I have like, I've read a fair number of books. I mean, you know, so it's like whatever. I can put that up there, and um, you know, I get a lot of click throughs, and um, it's uh, as I said, like it's it's not. I mean, they're gonna buy stuff anyway. You're just right. and I and I've also like set up accounts with um, uh, the Amazon UK, Amazon just like this year actually, Amazon EU and Amazon Canada, and I just got my first check from Amazon UK in pounds, so gotta figure out how to deposit that. But um, normally right. it's like you know American direct deposit, um, so that's easy. But that's what I do to, um, to monetize that. Um, I think like depending on who you are, I mean, you, I mean, I think, it, it, I mean, you're you're single, right? No, I have a wife, but we don't have kids yet. Yeah, well, that, I mean, that's really what I was more yeah. questioning. Yeah. I just feel like if you didn't have kids, it's if I didn't have kids, um, it would be much easier to hustle, um, and because you have more flexibility, you know, you have more freedom. The parameter space is bigger. Um, you can live. You can like work your way through lean periods. Yeah. You know, 
But when you have kids, your fixed costs are just going to be higher. Right. And so um, I feel like um, my basic attitude is I don't directly monetize my quote unquote public intellectual production too much. Um, I mean, I could, but I don't because like I'd rather focus on like a, a conventional career that gives me enough freedom yeah. that I can do this on the side. And I have bosses that are okay with me doing stuff like this on the side. Yeah. yeah. And I, you know, I always, I, I, I generally tend to like, I will take consulting jobs in genetics type stuff anyway. So I already kind of have a mentality where I do some outside work. So the fact that I do some like writing type stuff is not that big of a deal. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's all interesting to hear your angle on that. Why don't we get into some of the more interesting, maybe intellectual topics that you and I most, you and I might both be interested in. Maybe, do you want to start by, I, I know that you've been writing a lot today about stuff in the news. Do you feel oh, like, dude. <laughs> do you feel like, are you tired of that? Or do you want to go over that? Uh, I don't know. This was, um, yeah, it's, uh, is, uh, yeah. If you're tired, okay. if you're tired of it, we could totally just talk about something else. Um, so no, I'm not tired of it. So I'll, I'll, I'll go through it really quickly. So the person who did the analysis is a friend of mine. Okay. Here, I know him. Well, let, let, let's, let's tell listeners what we're talking about briefly. Yeah. So Elizabeth Warren got, got a bespoke DNA test to confirm whether she had native American ancestry and she did. And the estimate, basically the estimate using a very conservative method is say on the order of like 0.4%. Um, and then 8% of the ancestry was unassigned. Most of that probably is European. But if, if you did a more liberal conventional um, analysis, I think it would be closer to like 2%, something like that, right? Okay. Um, and the average in the United States for a white American is like, I don't know, like 0.2%. Like it, it's, it's, it's very close to artifactual. But um, it depends on what area of the country. Like if you're from Mississippi, a substantial number, like maybe like 10% of white Americans probably have Elizabeth Warren levels of native ancestry. Because, um, you know, that area of the South, you know, where the Cherokee, the Creek, um, you know, they were, those were regions where there were a lot of densely populated areas of native people relatively late. Um, places like New England, they just killed them all really early. You know, the New England whites don't have, if you're old stock like New Hampshire, like not, not if you're French Quebecois or anything like that. Let's say you're old stock New Hampshire. You don't have very much native ancestry because the early New Englanders were savage. I mean, they. I mean, you know, King Philip's War, this sort of stuff. So anyway, um, basically, it's it's a big deal because she claimed she was native or Cherokee or there was family mm -hmm. lore about it. I was just focused on the genetics. Um, I was up because I'm trying to get some work done before I go to American Society of Human Genetics meetings and um, this week in San Diego. And I see this come up over the, you know, the news wires, and I look and I see Carlos did it. I, Carlos Bustamante, who's um, a genetics professor, a very like eminent, well-known guy. He's a cool guy. We're friends. Um, I'm like, oh, okay. And like he's specialized. He doesn't specialize, but he knows a lot about uh, Latin American stuff because he takes a lot of um, students from Latin America. He's he's um, was born in Venezuela, and uh, basically, I knew that if Carlos did it, um, this is legit. It's, this is robust work. It's not shoddy, right? So I was I was basically like, I went to sleep and I thought, okay, they're going to argue over like the cultural and political angles because there's some stuff there, which we can talk about later. But um, it's not like, it's above my pay grade. It's not something I'm going to talk about because one, I'm probably never going to vote for her anyway. So I don't care, you know? Um, I wake up, like I, I slept about like four hours and I got up. And Twitter, and like I follow a fair number of conservative people because those are my people, like politically more. 
and they're retweeting just like you know the Gelman amnesia is it's where it's if something is in your field you read the, you read the newspaper and you're like oh my god they're so wrong they even have it backwards you know oh yeah they don't even know how wrong they are like they're not even wrong it just, <laughs> it doesn't even make any sense and so i'm experiencing this as I'm looking at my Twitter feed, because I have conservative, there are conservative journalists, and to some extent, the mainstream media was getting the numbers confused too. They're Googling numbers and they're comparing numbers. And I'm like, these are apples to oranges. You can't compare these numbers. They're using different methods. They're different, you know, there's the point estimate here. Like here, Carlos used some like, you know, Bayesian, whatever. Um, there was all sorts of technical issues. They were garbling and some people were saying, she's not even any more Native American than the typical white American and all this stuff. And I know the data sets he used. They're large data sets, they're robust. They're the standard ones. I've done similar analysis. What I can say is like, if you have a hypothesis, whether Elizabeth Warren has more than the typical Native ancestry um, of a typical old stock white American, yes, she does. You know, like that's hypothesis has been confirmed, okay. right? Carlos confirmed that. Now, the specific estimate of the percentages, that is a more, that is a somewhat different question. He didn't really directly answer that. He gave a distribution of when the admixture occurred. Right. And from that, people were making weird inferences. I mean, so the, the brass tax is like, she obviously had an ancestor, you know, in the 19th century who was probably of a mixed Cherokee background. So I don't know if she was Cherokee because genetics can't prove it. The genetics seems to indicate that this is a Amerindian from North America um, because it's placed between Canadian and Mexican indigenous populations when you look at that region of the genome. Uh, but obviously, like, we don't have that fine grain detail, but she, mm -hmm. she has family history that says this. She's from Oklahoma. It's probably Cherokee, like just being a Bayesian, right? Sure. I mean, if you see someone and their genotype says that they have some indigenous ancestry, they're probably going to be, it's probably going to come from what they have a family history of what they say, you know? Right. We can't right. prove it right now. Maybe we could in the future, depending on how much whole genome analysis we do. But anyway, so science is done. Like, it's really straightforward. There's a really, like, clear-cut answer to this. Now, the problem is, though, um, you know, conservatives, I guess they have some motivated reasoning about this. They want to say she's a liar. And, you know, there's all this issue, like, did she use affirmative action? I don't honestly know all the details. I'm probably never going to vote for this woman. So I don't care, okay? I mean, this is honestly my the truth of it. I don't care what she did to get her job. I'm not going to vote for her, you know? Right. I'm not a marginal voter, so um, I, I don't really care about that. I care about the science of it. If she had had zero Native ancestry, it's still plausible she had a Native ancestress, but it's just, if it's that far back, you might not have any DNA segments, right? So it wouldn't have even, all she did is increase the probability of the hypothesis of the oral history. Okay. Okay. If she had got, if the results had come back negative, that oral history might still be valid, you know? Right. If, if, I mean, maybe you would decrease the probability somewhat, but the reality is this has just increased its probability a lot, in my view. Um, now, whether she is a Native American or not, that's not for me to say, you know? <laughs> it's just like, it's not for me to say. Like, I'm the real type of Indian. Like, I don't care, you know, I don't know about American Indians, you know? Yeah, I don't know. So, it's a good question. Like, what is how much Native American do you have to be to be counted for her claims to be legit, like culturally? That's obviously you can't answer that. Even, you just said culturally. That's like in, in the eye of the beholder. Well, that's what I'm saying. But that's an interesting political question. You know, like I'm like I'm saying well, it's not for, a political question, but that is a political question. It's not a cultural question. So like there are blood quanta laws in the United States, not laws, but like tribal rules of blood quanta, but they're not gen they're not genomically validated. 
So, right. for example, if your if your grandparent is a full member of a tribe, you have some of the benefits. But if it was your great grandparent, and you have no other, then you don't. You know. I say, yeah, sure, sure. But, but, that, but that grandparent might not be 100% native. Most native people, it's very rare to find a native person in the Americas um, that does not have European ancestry. Right, sure, right. When I said political, I meant more like it would be interesting to add, like I don't know the public opinion data on this, but it would be interesting to see, like what would a leftist say, how much does Elizabeth Warren have to be Native American for her claims to count as legitimate? And well, if you ask the conservative, how much does she have to be Native American for her claims to count as legitimate? That's kind of an interesting question where people decide to draw that line. But see, but from the leftists, because like there have been some. Um, I mean, I don't follow this closely, but I know some of it. Some Native people, some Cherokee especially, are very angry at Warren for claiming Cherokee heritage and culture. Okay, are they? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's already some some petitions like online about how angry they are, and they also are angry about this DNA thing because they think she's trying to validate a cultural thing with a scientific thing, and right. that's not kosher. Right. No, you, you know, were, you were saying that her levels are not that different than what you might find in Mississippi. I, from what I've seen and from the scientific literature, so white people across the country, depending on what type of white person, I mean, your last name is Murphy. Are you like from New England? Um, Irish American from the Northeast of the yeah, US. You're yeah. very unlikely to have, if, you're, if, you're, if your ancestry is mostly from like um, the great migration of the, of the famine period. Yeah. You know, if that's mostly that, you're unlikely to have Native ancestry. The people who have Native ancestry that are white Americans are the people that say, like, um, uh, Scotch-Irish show up in the uplands of Kentucky, Tennessee, Pennsylvania in the mid-18th century. Okay? Right, okay? They go in, and some of, the, some of those people, as you know from, like, some of the, the fiction of, like, that period and a little later in the 19th century, they went Native. In right. terms of, like, there, there were yeah, young boys that are like, I'd rather be an Indian than right. like farm. And so they actually became native and they intermarried with native. So I mean, that's one of the things, like the native tribes themselves were a cultural amalgam. So um, the Cherokee by the 19th century had a lot of European and some African ancestry, you know? Gotcha. The, la sure. the, the John Ross, the, 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 the fact that I like to say is John, Ro John Ross, the, uh, the chief during the Trail of Tears was seven eighth European in ancestry, mm. right? But he was culturally Cherokee. Um, so for the Europeans, these old stock Europeans, they intermarried somewhat, and some of their genes went into more of their genes went into the Indians, the native people, because there are more of them, you know, just genetically, the demographic differences. And then you have the native people, some of them also bled over into um, the old stock Americans, these settlers, these frontiers people. And genealogically, I would bet that every single old stock American in the white American and probably even black American, because where do they get their white ancestry? Um, probably have a little line of descent back to a native person. Interesting. That doesn't mean that they have any genes identical, any distinctive genes from a native American. Because if you go back 300 years, you're unlikely to actually have any of that. Okay. okay. Interesting. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I think so, so. So if you go back far enough, you're going to have a line of genealogical descent, but you are unlikely to have any DNA. Um, Elizabeth Warren's level of admixture and her her distance is actually probably around the it's around the fifty fifty range. Working off memory, there's a fifty percent chance she would have actually gotten any of those distinctive, you know, genes from that individual. Right. I think and that's hard for a lot of people to to understand that you can have a line of descent without that necessarily implying genes. Yeah, because people, I think people think of genetics as a blending model where you just blend people together. 
But it's a probabilistic model. It's a right? probabilistic discrete. It's a discrete model. And so you're sampling the genome right. of your parents. And so you're sampling. Right. Obviously, you're subsampling 50. And so that subsample. So one wrote, I, I wrote an article for Slate many years ago um, about um, how you're not 25% each of your grandparents. Your expected value is 25%. So I have right. um, three children, all have been genotyped, all their grandparents have been genotyped. I know what fraction they are of each. So my daughter is like 29% my dad and 21% my mom. You know? Oh, wow. Yeah. So I know my son is like 28% his. Um, maternal grandmother and so you know 22 percent and that way i also can tell like his maternal grandmother is half norwegian and i can tell that my my middle child my oldest son older son he is highly enriched for being norwegian which basically means that he must have a lot of genes um a lot of ancestry from his norwegian great-grandmother Fascinating. Fascinating. Now, now right, right. So you're you're kind of known for being ahead of the curve on sequencing your kids. I mean, yeah. what, what other kinds of insights were you able to glean from that? Like, what does that help you understand and do for them? You know, I mean, initially there was nothing that was like super functional. I mean, there's some basic things. Like, I mean, I was talking to my wife about this the other day, and I think she'll be okay with me talking about this. Um, my middle child, um, we knew before he was born that he was going to have dry earwax. Not a big deal, but um, you know, my it, this is a this is a characteristic where that's really common in Northeast Asia among Koreans, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, most almost all Koreans have dry earwax, but um, the majority of the people in the rest of the world have you know wet earwax, and then people in Africa all have wet earwax. Anyways, my wife and I are both um, heterozygotes, which means we carry one copy of each. So my oldest and youngest, they have wet earwax. My middle has dry earwax. Now, my sister has dry earwax, and I can tell you that she was apparently taken to um, the dermatologist for illness when she was young. Because doctors that are not um, habituated towards having Asian you know, patients thought it was a pathology. Interesting. Right? And so, I mean, like, this is just like a small thing where it's like, oh, well, like, I know that he doesn't have some skin, you know, he doesn't have some sort of psoriasis around his ear. His earwax is just flaky, you know? Um, one correlation with that is um, your sweat glands are smaller, I think. Hmm. So uh, probably his perspiration is not going to be as much of an issue. So I know little things like that. There was no major disease things. Um, well, there was one thing that we have. I'm not going to talk about it because it's, it's a, a family thing, but sure. it's not like a big deal, but it's not trivial. Mm-hmm. And um, we have, I have something inherited from my mother. And so I, we always check a certain region of, of, my, of our children's genome, whether they inherited that from my mother. Because I can check yeah. to see if they got it from my mom or my dad. And so we always check. It doesn't matter. You don't need to know the variant. We know what gene it's in. And so I know that if they got my mom's copy, because I have it too, and so I have that like you know pathogenic copy, I can tell if my, my children have it or not. So um, the, the issue with your genotype or your genome sequence, which is like all the positions, the what I, way I explain it to people is that its value only appreciates. It never depreciates, right? Mm. Its value is the minimum the day you get it. Mm. You get all the insights that you can get from the science at the time, but as science progresses, you'll learn more and more about the variation in your genome, and you already have it. That's interesting. Now, I'm just curious. So is it like, like a data set that you have on your computer? <laughs> um, which one? My son's? Yeah, like, so you're talking about the value of it appreciating. So is this like when new knowledge comes through, are you able to like rerun your data? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I have like, I have raw files and um, they're in a, 
Like I have a, <laughs> my, I have like a, so m most of the data is actually genotype data, um, which is a small file. You know, it's a small, uncompressed, it's actually compressed, it's like 30 megabytes, small file. But um, my sons um, who got sequenced before he was born, and I think you mentioned that in the introduction, yeah. he's the first, first healthy baby child documented in the history of the world that was sequenced before he was born. So that's yeah, what it cool. is, right? That's cool. Um, but but um, so that he's um, it was low coverage. It wasn't super high coverage, but in any case, um, it's on the order of like many gigabytes. Okay. And so I have a special folder labeled LLK Little Lord Con. Um, <laughs> so that's like uh, and like it's all like backed up on Dropbox and stuff like that. Although obviously, like the prices dropped so much, I could just have the whole family sequenced for you know probably like four or five thousand dollars now, maybe cheaper. Do you think that it's it's um, that's a worthwhile purchase for the average person at this point? It's an opportunity cost. So, I mean, average yeah. person in Silicon Valley, yes. <laughs> average person in Des Moines, probably not. How much uh, is it now to do like one child, let's say? Um, basically, medical grade whole genome sequencing will run you $999 from Veritas, right? Which is a, a consumer company, consumer-oriented company in Boston. There's ways you can get the price cheaper, um, the basically the raw data that's returned, like the level of quality that is demanded by medical grade genomics is a little bit of an overkill. You can like reduce the quality and pretty much get like 98, 99% of the information and have a cheaper price point. It's just called reducing the coverage on the sequencing. Um, so you could probably get it down to like 500, 400, um, right now, just, you have to like ask around and this is not like a flourishing consumer market right now. So it's really a, a situation where you can work angles and get deals. Why is it not a flourishing consumer market, do you think? Um, in the United States, it's partly like fear of genetics because fear of insurance still. Oh, that's a lot of it. Um, privacy fears uh, are a lot of it. And also like right now, um, it's not actionable for a lot of people on the consumer level. Like maybe about 10% of people, it's actionable. You, you get something out of it immediately. You know, um, I think like the big benefits would be insurance companies, if there's national insurance, like in England, like the NHS, I think these sorts of um, situations, they're going to start sequencing people ahead of time. So to give you a concrete example, um, idiopathic illnesses of small, of like, you know, um, neonatals, neonates, like just babies that are born, um, if they have an illness, what they've started to do is they realize, oh, if they just sequence immediately, um, something like 30% of the time or 40% of the time, they can actually diagnose because the neonate can tell you what their problems is. Mm. They're not flourishing. They're not thriving. You can like run a bunch of tests, but it can be inconclusive. And so they've started to realize if you just do aggressive sequencing of any infant that's not thriving mm. or that seems to be ill in some way, you can actually like figure out in a substantial minority of cases what their illness is, right? Um, Interesting. I can see that just being like National Health Service in Britain's like, okay, it's opt out. We're just gonna sequence all the infants, and if there's any problem that pops up, we're gonna do a scan to see if there's a major issue. Cool. You know? Yeah. yeah. And what about things like 23andMe? Are those are worth it, or are those, are those hype, or hyper. what do you? How do you see those? Uh, I think 23andMe. I mean, again, it's opportunity cost. Like, you know, the ancestry version is $99. The health version is $199. I mean, for me, like, for example, I was buying 23andMe. Like, I bought like, how much did I spend? <laughs> I probably spent like three or four thousand dollars on Twenty Three and Me back when it was like three hundred, four hundred dollars a kit. Oh wow! You know, um, back like you know in two thousand ten. You know, I had the money. I mean, I wasn't a rich person, but you know, I was doing okay. I didn't have kids. You know, whatever. I could, I could, you know, spend the money. I'm not sure if I, you know, I'd be more careful about like forking out like three hundred dollars on something like that now. 
Um, even if like the technology was like 2010 technology, because I have three kids and you know, like there's like there's like things I might not want to get then. Um, but uh, basically, like if you're upper middle class, like I think it's totally fine to do that. Basically, I mean, you can go out and like have like a fancy dinner for a hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. So your genotype never 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 depreciates. You might not visit it for years, but then all of a sudden something happens. Now, for, let's say you're someone like me who's like, I'm not a geneticist, but- Oh, I'm sorry good. for you, man, sorry for you. <laughs> well, I'm good with computers and you know, I know a little bit of programming and I can do yeah. some pretty sophisticated statistical analysis and I'm, and I'm good at teaching myself new statistical analyses. I'm, I'm just curious, how hard is it to get the, the raw genome data and actually learn your way through um, analyzing it? So um, the genotype data from 23andMe is relatively easy. It's just a text file that's very straightforward, and it would be trivial for you to figure out how to use that. But the, I can't imagine they give you very raw data. Well, they do give you because there are only 600, 630,000 positions. Oh, so they do give you like a kind of raw like spreadsheet or something? It's not a spreadsheet. It's a text file. Okay. It's a text file with like columns and it's row column. Okay. It's a matrix format, right? Okay. And what about, because we started the conversation talking about, you were saying, you know, for somewhere between 500 and 1,000, you can get the full, the full sequencing. Is that the right way to call it? Yeah. And so I mean, let, let me um, clarify, because the media gets this confused. Um, yeah, good. Um, the media gets this confused a lot. Sequencing is basically like um, the maximum amount of information. So your, your genome is um, the haploid, like not the diploid, because you have two copies of everything. So a single copy is three billion. There's three billion letters of A, C, T, and G. Okay, okay. that's what it literally is. So it's like you know, it's like a three gigabyte file, okay. you know, in raw text because each I think each letter turns anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so okay, so three billion. Most of that does not vary very much between humans. So it's not it's redundant information. So right. like this is a situation where like some sort of compression algorithm would yeah. work. Right. What you're curious about is stuff that's um, varying between populations. Okay. Those are polymorphisms. You have certain cutoff, like oh, like one percent of it is like different, whatever. Um, you know, there's different levels of ways to measure the polymorphism, but basically, depending on how you count it, there's about like a hundred million polymorphisms variants within this three billion. Okay. Okay. Now, those hundred million are not equally informative. There's some polymorphisms that are varying across a lot of populations. There's some polymorphisms that are like only in one population. And there's some polymorphisms that are low frequency in terms of like, it's 99% one, vo- one version, 1% the other, and other polymorphisms that are like 70, 30, okay? So when 23andMe gets it down to 630,000, one thing that it's doing is it's maximizing informative polymorphisms that have variation in populations that it's interested in, Okay. Um, which means Europeans. So traditionally, these SNP marker arrays have been have been geared towards European population genetic um, variation because I mean that's your target audience. They're really they're improving that and they're changing that now. Mm. But you know that's what that's what they're really targeting. And um, only about like a you know a percent or so of the genome is actually coding for genes. And so they also so those are called genic positions, exonic positions that are translated into proteins. So I think last I read, ninety percent of Mendelian diseases 
So these are like the classical diseases you inherit recessively and stuff. Um, those are found in exonic positions in about like 1% of the genome, right? And so if you're gonna create like a chip, and so this is a technology where it's a literal chip where it has like a million positions max, something like that. I think the new chips have like two or three million, but in any case, this is a tiny subset of the variation in, your, in, in like the population's genome. What they're gonna do is they're gonna target common diseases because they wanna know, check for those. And they're gonna check, very, they're gonna like sample variation across the genome so that they get a good representation. You don't need that many variant positions to do ancestry work, okay? okay. So for example, like, you know, depending on like what you wanna do, anywhere from like 10 to 100,000 is good enough for a lot of work. And then up above like 500,000 is probably overkill for most of what people would want okay. of markers, right? Now, like I said, all of these marker positions are gonna be enriched for like certain diseases. So the beauty of sequencing is we don't have to have this discussion. You just get all the data. Right, right. And if you wanna like subset some of it, you can subset of it. The crappy stuff is um, my programs that I had written um, to like process text files, they do not work as well when you have gigabyte size files. Right, right. You know, so right. all of a sudden like data manipulation starts to get to be a serious issue with these massive um, sequences. Okay, fascinating. I don't know if you're watching the chat, but we just got a uh, super chat question from Mark. Ooh, a super chat. Yep, for five bucks. That's a strong desire for the answer to this question. Uh, this is for you, uh, Ruthie. Yeah, Ashkenazi. Oh, you're reading it. I'm reading it. Let me read it out loud for anyone who's not watching the chat. Uh, Mark asks, if my partner is having IVF, would you recommend we get Ashkenazi sperm instead of mine? Parentheses, white Australian, comma, don't know my ancestry. Um, <laughs> dude, I don't know anything about your life situation, bro. Um, so, you know, I'm 5'8", so I'm not the tallest guy. Um, uh, my wife is, is quite tall, actually. She's, well, we're, we're similar height, but... Uh, so, I mean, you know, height is a big deal, um, and people would want to select for that, but, like, you know, I'm not, like, going to give up my right to my, you know what I'm saying? So, um, I don't understand why, I mean, why would you want that? Like, what is the reason? <laughs> I mean, I don't really understand. You want them to, like, you know, go to Israel and dress up like a Hasidic Jew and they'll make it a little more authentic? I don't know, like, they're 50% Ashkenazi. I don't, um, I mean, you know... <laughs> No, I, I, unless you give me, like, an actionable reason. <laughs> I mean, if, if, you, if you are, like, convinced that, um, that the Jewish humor is heritable and you really prize that. <laughs> I, guess, I guess the only reason would be if you want to maximize Ashkenazi traits. I guess the person, I guess Mark is imagining intelligence. So maybe, maybe the more, maybe a, a, a more general uh, way to interpret the question that might be of more general interest um, beyond Mark would be uh, maybe how, how do you think about people who want to optimize for intelligence or optimize perhaps for other traits? Like, mm -hmm. how do you see that? There, there is an easy way to optimize for intelligence. Find an intelligent mate. Well, that's actually not easy though, is it? If you're, you know, depending on who you are. <laughs> Yeah, well, if you're not intelligent, I'm sorry. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, the way you optimize, though, is, like, you know, you don't have to, like, filter by ethnicity. Like, you just, like, you, you want to select for the trait. Like, this is what, like, classical breeders did. So, I mean, when you go to a sperm bank, um, 
a good sperm bank should have validated, you know, the SAT score, the GRE, or their educational qualifications. So, I mean, my understanding from what I um, have read, and I, I have not read much of it because I don't need to go to a sperm bank, um, is that, you know, if you are a tall, blonde doctor that's athletic, you have super sperm. And I mean, it's like the other guys' sperms are in the sperm bank just so that they can say they have some choice, you know? Like your sperm is gonna get selected. So I mean, when, when people go to sperm banks, um, some single women, but a lot of lesbians too, um, and I'm assuming some, I, don't, I think the dynamics are a little different when the husband is infertile basically, when his sperm doesn't work, but in any case, they're very, very careful about what they select for, and they select for the smartest, tallest, you know, most powerful individual. So that's basically what I would say. Like, if you if you think your sperm is not up to snuff, then just go to a bank and like buy the best. And when you do that, you can just say what you want to optimize for. In the U.S., you can. I mean, it depends. Like, there there are fly by night operations. There's really good ones. So you just have to be careful. You know, um, I don't know how I don't know how it works in other countries. I know Denmark is a big exporter uh, of sperm because they have really liberal laws about that, and a lot of people want white children. A lot of pe non-white people want white children. Well, I guess both. Turkey, Turkey had to ban it. I they had to Turkey's ban white pretty... children. <laughs> no, they had to ban Danish sperm imports. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. I, but, I never heard of that. I'm just saying, like, if you're if you're a white woman, you don't want a mixed race child usually, right? So you want to get, and if you're gonna have like a white child, you might as well have like a Nordic one. That's my assumption. I, I I'm not a woman. You know? <laughs> interesting. Okay. Well, thanks for the question, Mark. That was an interesting, uh, stimulating uh, question. Um, what were we? Okay. How about this, uh, Razib? What about consumer? What about sort of consumer level genetic manipulation? Like when? Mm -hmm. where, how far are we from that? Or what's the state of play with being able to actually manipulate your child before it's born? Well, so I mean, manipulate, you mean genetic engineering. I don't yeah. think that that's going to happen for anything that's not disease related um, for about a generation. So I think we can kick that ball down the curve. But when it comes to pre-implantation genetic diagnosis and screening, we're almost there. Like as some of your listeners probably know, um, how many listeners do we got? Like how many people are chatting and stuff? Uh, right now we got 60 people watching. Okay. So anyway, I just, just want to get a sense. Um, but there's a company called Genomic Prediction um, that's based out of New Jersey and they are starting to come online with consumer-oriented products through fertility clinics where you take a range of eggs. So you know that like the eggs, you basically these fertilized eggs that, um, well, ova, I guess, that you produce by that stage, or zygotes, they exhibit a range of outcomes. So like, you know, I have, like my children range in, in, in height. I mean, they're, they're, they're young, so you say length, from say like the 15th percentile to the 15th percentile in both directions. Right? But they're genetically siblings, you know? Mm -hmm. But I mean, the way that, that we were talking about genetics works as a discrete process with the sampling, um, you're gonna get a huge range and a lot of that is genetically controlled, especially with something like height. Mm -hmm. And so let's say you want taller children, especially taller sons, you can select from your own output, right? I mean, that's gonna be something that people are gonna be doing in the next couple of years, especially wealthier people. You're talking um, about embryo selection. Yeah, basically. I don't think they're at embryo stage. It'll be zygote, but in any case, um, right. yeah, it'll be zy it'll be a more zygotic stage, right? Um, and so, like, if you're, let's say you're a rich person and you're really smart um, and you're a prodigy and you want your zygote to be a prodigy, well, you want to get like a polygenic risk score that's like way out of control compared to 
all the other characters now that you have in your egg. I think that's that's what they're thinking. But I mean, I think the number one number one thing that it's going to be used for is like more disease screening right now. But um, you know, there's going to be rich people who have the money, who have the time, who want to create a better them. But okay, so currently though, there's not consumer embryo selection going on in the U.S., right? I mean, not officially. I mean, it, in a way, like when you're when you're doing when you're doing the the test pre. Um, the non-invasive prenatal test for Down syndrome, that is embryo selection. It's fetal selection, right? Oh, okay. I mean, like, every woman that's above the age of 35 now that gets pregnant, they're offered that through insurance. Interesting. And most, right. of, the, most of the positive results in the United States, 70% last I checked, are terminated, those pregnancies in the second trimester. Wow. So, um, so do you see that becoming – do you see consumers having way more options over the next few years? Do you see that uh, kind of exploding in, in the popularity and the, the power of that or I do. much I do. slower? I do. I think, I think consumers are going to do a lot more screening for like disease stuff in particular. But um, a lot of it will be driven by China, I think, um, or like East Asian countries where their, um, their fertility is low, so they're really particular – and they don't have some of the um, you know pro-life type activists going on. Those sorts of ethical uh, complaints, concerns um, in society. So I think we have to look at it from more than just an American perspective. Um, I know you're in Britain, but you know you're still like, you know, some of the greatest country in the world. You know, we're not. I'm, I'm Cherokee, bro. Oh, I dude. <laughs> I just kidding. Do not even go there after today, right? No, not at all. Oh, I'm just man. kidding. It was just like, ah. I mean, you never know, but yeah. Yeah, you never know. Um, but uh, yeah, so I think uh, a lot of this stuff in uh, the genetic space is going to get driven by uh, international demand and um, concerns. And we are probably going to be a little bit left behind just because we're a little worried. I mean, we're not even adopting sequencing partly because people are scared about insurance. Like, we have, we have like too complex and uh, just organically overgrown of a market and an ecosystem for something like this to disrupt. And when you say people are afraid of insurance, you mean that they are afraid they're going to get identified as having an expensive condition, then they're not going to be able to afford the cost of insurance. Yeah, like premium. I mean, I think like technically you're not supposed to increase premiums and stuff that way anymore, but people are still paranoid. And who knows, like the Republicans might you know, kick Obamacare to the curb. It's not implausible, you know? Right. All of a sudden, you just, like, give an insurance the fact that you probably are going to die of cancer in your 60s at a given percentage, you know? And right. you're 52. Right. right. Okay. Uh, what do you make of the all of the kind of uh, political hysteria around genetic differences among groups? Uh, you know, you can get me in trouble, bro. Um, you know, I think um, it's it's definitely the situation has gotten a lot worse in the last ten years. The hysteria. Oh yeah, it's way in the United States, way worse. Hmm. So um, I think like if there's gonna be any discussion and exploration of this topic, it's gonna happen on the down low, which it already is in some ways, and it'll happen outside the United States. You know, won't happen in it won't happen in the United States because um, you know we can't even talk about can't even talk about sex differences anymore. Right. You know, you can I mean, you get in trouble. We're talking about sex differences now. We're we're going backwards on this issue. So, this is my perception. So, is your larger view of the the international politics of it then kind of similar to what you were saying w with the genetic engineering that the US and maybe the West in particular as a whole is going to become kind of more and more just a backwater like politically and intellectually around genetics and it, it's conversation around genetics but also it's uh, you know, 
uh, engineering of genetics and the rest of the world, in particular China, is just going to shoot way past us. Yeah, India too. Um, I, I, I think there's a shadow that haunts us, and that's the shadow of World War II, and also the shadow of eugenics. And um, I was, I say, like 15 years ago, I was a little more optimistic that we'd go beyond that because there are a lot of things that are happening on the consumer side, say like non-invasive prenatal testing in vitro. There's a lot of little things that are happening on the margins that people just take for granted. But um, yeah, I just, I don't think that. Um, Basically, our society is not designed for talking about that sort of thing, and so people won't. Mm -hmm. They respond to incentives, you know, so um, they won't. The people in East Asia, from what I've heard and seen, they don't have those sorts of taboos. They don't have that history. They don't have the right racial dynamics and societies. And um, Indians are also very similar. They don't. They don't have the same sort of history. So. They will right. talk about it. Do you know much about kind of DIY, uh, kind of black market, genetic hacking type uh, groups or or tendencies? I mean, I used to. I used to be into um, the DIY. Like when I lived in the Bay Area, I used to be kind of hooked into them. Um, it, it's cool. I mean, the hacking. I mean, it's dangerous. But you know, there's some supplements that are dangerous. Mm -hmm. So I try. I try to. I try to always like caution. I try to calm down my concern because, well, compare it to something else, right? So supplementation is relatively unregulated, you know, mm -hmm. and people can like load up on supplements. So why can't they do this DIY stuff? Yeah, some of them will die, but you know, if you don't have a family, if you don't have children, I mean, you only live once and like, you know, there's a reason that men in particular have a high mortality and they're like more women by the thirties, you know? Mm -hmm. There are more males that are born than females. And then around 28, all of a sudden, there's a surplus of females. And it's because we killed ourselves off. We have, like, ex wild, uh, you know, sex linked diseases. Um, basically, I'm pretty libertarian about that. It just needs to be open about what they're doing. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And the only thing that I would be worried about is, like, you know, obviously, you can't, like, experiment with stuff that has contagious, contagious aspects. You know? Right. right. But if right. you want to, like, inject yourself with stuff... Um, I'm not sure if it's prudent for society to encourage this through um, mass-produced kits, hmm. you know, but some people will probably do it, you know. Self-experimentation is a thing, and uh, right. there's always going to be a niche. I just wonder if in some weird way the hysterical political correctness of the U.S. maybe in some ways would incentivize a more robust and active kind of DIY culture of kind of crypto anarchist libertarian experimentation around these things. Uh, but I don't I mean, know. There, there are people who are, who are like that, but um, like you said, it is crypto. Um, there's a lot of stuff that's going on, a lot of views, a lot of perspectives that are, you know, hidden now in American society. Um, I mean, let me give you a, con let me give you a concrete example that you might find interesting and maybe not. Yeah, um, yeah, aware of, you know, I am, um, you know, I'm from, um, uh, uh, my family's from a Muslim background, but I'm atheist and I'm, I'm, I'm pretty like skeptical of Islam, but whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I have like, you know, I have Brown friends who are, uh, you know, who are like, you know, Brown American, like Indian American, like, you know, you're stereotypical, super progressive, hyper-educated, upper middle-class South Asian American. And, you know, they're all about like white supremacy and, they hate Islamophobia and stuff like that. But, you know, privately, things can be a little different. Um, 
So, you know, they'll be like, yeah, Islam's a fucked up religion. And it's just like fucked up, you know? And I'm like, yeah, but like you fucking hate Islamophobes. You're like, yeah, well, you know, I mean, you can't really say that. And like, I'm against prejudice, but I'm just saying it's a fucked up religion, <laughs> you know? I mean, they're not stupid. Like they know yeah. all the problems with Islam. And they know that it's not like the most feminist religion or whatever the hell people They're just say. signaling otherwise. Well, yeah, but they know. And like, you know, white people have no idea. Like maybe white liberals are that stupid. So, I mean, you know, I mean, honestly, I don't know. Like I'll give you another example. Like I had a friend, um, uh, you know, a geneticist friend. And I mean, this is, I, I, I said this on like the, I think, I think this was edited out. I said this on the Urbane Cowboys podcast. But um, he, uh Apparently, progressives are super against Hindu nationalism now. There's, like, some reason. Um, it's a thing, okay? And Hindu nationalists are pretty Islamophobic in, like, a coarse way. I mean, they are. That's just how they are. Okay. And he said something about, like, I wonder what the Muslim students on campus feel when they see there's, a, like, a Hindu meeting or a Hindu nationalist meeting. And I was just like, I'm like, bro, you're so dumb. Muslim <laughs> students don't give a shit unless they're Pakistani because Arabs don't give a shit about brown people. You know, like basically like white liberals have an idea that Muslims have this brown people solidarity. Arabs are racist as fuck. Okay. They think brown people are oily and dirty. Okay. They don't give a shit about Kashmir. Like they might say a few things, but they're not going to go to a protest about Kashmir. They can't find it on the map. You know, so like, wait real quick. It's kind of interesting that you're distinguishing between Arabs and brown people, because I think a lot of white Westerners would see Arabs as brown. That's because we all look the same to you. i'm just saying i'm just saying what a lot of white people would kind of think yeah yeah, but like if you look at like the um, arab terrorists that are um arab terrorists in hollywood look at their names they're indian because real arabs don't look brown enough for you guys ah okay they look a little too much like you like look at your fucking beard dude (laughs) no no i'm serious like if you look at the two of us you look more like an arab than i do objectively You know, I know you but mean, like, yeah, but yeah. you consider Arab brown, and so you have to like, you have to, you have to, like act to portray very light brown people. But they got to be a little browner because, like, otherwise they look a little too much like you. You know, that's a really interesting point. Yeah, I never really thought about that. Well, I mean, like, you don't think you don't think of Ralph Nader as like um, non-white like politician that ran in two thousand? He's Lebanese. You know, uh, how much Lebanese? He's all Lebanese. Really? Yes, exactly. Really, of course. I you had don't no really. idea. Yeah, well, you don't. Or it's like the, the singer Tiffany is half half Lebanese. Her last name is Darwish. You know? Yeah, no, it's a good little, point. Uh, now that I think about it, when I rack my brain for all of the Arab people I know, yeah, they're they're you're right. They're they're much lighter skinned than that than than what a lot of people would think of when they think of a brown person. Yeah, well, they're not. I mean, some of them are brownish. A lot of them right, that are some brownish. are. Yeah. They have African ancestry, though, and so they're very distinct-looking. They don't look South Asian. Right. Okay. An Arab as brown-skinned as me has curly hair and has obvious African ancestry. I've never met an Arab as brown as me that doesn't have African ancestry, you know? Like, they're Sudanese or Yemeni or something like that. Right. Interesting. So. Anyway, your larger point was that Arabs don't care about, like, racism? Well, I mean, no, they're kind of against racism, especially when white people do it. You know, but you were um, saying that w- within India or what were you referring to? Uh, just like traditionally, I mean, like it, like Indian workers or Filipino workers uh, or like black workers that go to work in the Gulf, like they know what they're going to experience. It's called Jim Crow. It's just like in Arabic or something. Like I've right. been to the Gulf. I've seen it. Like it's a caste society in a very literal way. So it's like um, 
it's like a, a dystopian, like techno dystopian future, you know, it might be our own future, but I don't know. Um, you know, uh, so it's like everyone knows their place in, in the Gulf, you know, right. The Arabs are like kind of like the Trustafarians, the ruling class. And then, you know, you have some like skilled workers, often European, sometimes South Asian doing things. And then you have like, you know, the servant class of South Asians that do most of the work. Right. And so um, this is you it. This- you're saying in the Gulf, you're saying. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Have you have you spent much time there? No, but I've gone there for business, and I've had relatives. Um, going to the Gulf, if you're Bangladeshi, is a very good way to turn you into an atheist. Oh yeah, why is that? Yeah, like, do you just see like how disgusting Arabs are, in terms of just like they're not like you know, Muslims from outside the Arab world. I think do perceive Arabs as being a holy people because that's the language of God. Hmm. But then you go to the Arab world and you see how they're behaving, you know, or you live in Saudi Arabia and you see how people behave in Saudi Arabia, the debauchery, the hypocrisy. Right. Okay. And so you start to realize like, wait, why, why is this supposed to be such a holy religion? You know, when these people are so unholy, that's what I've seen. Um, I, I, it hasn't happened to me. I was always an atheist. No, in the Gulf, I mean, there's like, there's like straight up slavery, right? Um, they officially, I think slave trading officially stopped in the seventies. Oh, okay. Okay. There, I think the last open air slave markets were shut down in the seventies. Um, but they have de facto slavery in terms of like, okay, like they confiscate your passport. Um, you don't make enough money that you can go back. I mean, I mean, I, I would say it's more like indentured servitude. So it's not chattel slavery. Like you still have some human rights, right? So let's distinguish between chattel slavery where, okay. Um, like Arabs used to, uh, you know, the, king, the the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, they used to do a little thing where they would kidnap, um, kidnap and enslave uh, um, black people making the Hajj, you know, and that's shadow slavery, right? And then they have like ownership of you. And if you're a woman, they can turn you into a sex slave. I don't think that's too common. Um, but I mean, it's like indentured servitude, you know, so you're more like a serf, right? You have some rights. Um, as a human being, but you are someone's property in some functional way. Right, right. Yeah, I've, I, I don't know much about the Gulf at all. I haven't been there and I've only read somewhat, but I've read a little bit about that. It sounds- Oh, it's fun, it's really fun. <laughs> Just fun to be... read about, not to live there. It sounds oh, no, like... I mean, no, 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 you'd be fine, you're a white guy. Yeah. I mean, you, I mean, they, they really like white people because they think you're competent. I mean, they're never gonna like give you the same rights, but that's fine, They'll, you don't have to work that hard and you make a lot of money. You know, it's really hot and like you can't go to the, I don't know, like I mean, there's some things like depending on the, like Dubai you can drink, in Qatar you can drink, Kuwait you can't drink I think, um, at least in like bars and stuff like that. So all I'm saying is like you can make a good life there for you, even if the majority of people are like subject to like deep immiseration, but that's not you. And what about like a high skilled uh, Southeast Asian person such as yourself? Uh, yeah, generally it's fine. I mean, we're not, we're not like, we're, we're lower down on the pecking order than the white people, obviously, but. But you um, can go there just fine and do, you do well there and you, yeah, don't, have, I mean, you don't have the problems main, there, like racial problems there, do you? Uh, I mean, I, I didn't. Um, I think it's a little different also because my family's Muslim. Um, Muslims tend to have more equal rights compared to like Hindus or Christians, officially. They, they tend to be a little less abusive towards their Muslim servants. Okay. I mean, that's just true. Because okay. they, they're just like, oh, it's Muslim. You can't, like, beat them and abuse them as much. Um, Interesting. I mean, I, 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 I talked to a Saudi guy once where his family, they, they specifically got um, Sri Lankan and Christian Filipino maids because they're not Muslim, so you can abuse them. Wow. 
Huh. So, I mean, he was just honest about it. Fascinating. So there's another question, another super track question here for uh, five bucks from uh, Pelagius Lobo here. And the question is, it's a general question. Uh, what's your idea on how the Arabs fell from grace? Whatever that means. Um, it is probably, let me think. Well, I mean, so all societies go through phases uh, of like social increased and decreased social cohesion. Um, so it's like a great unwinding process and then they can rewind, right? And so like the Arabs had a lot of social cohesion for a couple of centuries there. And what happened in the ninth century specifically is um, they started um, utilizing slave soldiers uh, uh, from, uh, from the Turkish lands. And basically at some point those slave soldiers took over. Um, and after that, the Arabs didn't have control over their own societies. Now, another issue is um, in the 8th century, and especially the 9th century, um, a lot of the action in Baghdad was actually driven by Persianate elites, especially from Eastern Persia. And there was a period um, in the early 9th century when um, uh, they almost relocated um, the capital from Baghdad to Khorasan, which is like in the border between Afghanistan and Eastern Iran now. So they're gonna like move the capital because that's where like the soldiers and the support of the current regime was. And so actually the Arab the Arab period was actually relatively short lived when you're talking about like, Arabs as Arabs from Arabia. Now a lot of the people in Iraq and Syria became Arabicized over time, but that's kind of a different issue, right? Um, so I mean I think like after about like the 900 AD, um, the Arabs lost they, they lost control of their own destiny. Um, the slave soldiers, the Turks took over, the Persians took over a lot of the aspects of culture, and um, they became marginalized um, in a lot of their own, in a lot of the societies that they notionally ran. In North Africa, slightly different um, situation. Um, but the question was why or when? Was why, right? Yeah. Like I just see, I see it as a natural process of, um, to some extent, there's a natural process of decay, right? Like, to the classical Greeks, compare them to what the Greeks were in 100 AD under the Romans. I mean, they're okay, but, I mean, 5th, 4th century Athens, what? You know, sometimes societies just explode, and it's hard to, like, figure out what causal connections are, and then all those things that you're juggling, like, they're going to eventually unwind, right? Mm -hmm. And so, Yeah. Yeah, that, no, that's a great answer. That's interesting. I don't know too much about the region or the time periods you were referring to, so you definitely gave me something to think about and read about. Do you see the American empire at the current moment in a possible state of civilizational decline? Yeah, I talk about it every day. Yeah, I'm inclined to see it the same way, too. Um, I mean, how old are you? I'm 32. What about you? Uh, I am 41. Okay. So I remember 1999. You know, I remember the 1990s. And like, yeah, our internet was slow, but we were awesome. You know, <laughs> we were the only ones that had internet. You know, um, there were a couple. Were you, of like, were you born and raised in the U.S.? I was raised in the U.S. I wasn't born here. I was born okay. in Bangladesh. Cool. So, um, you know, I remember the '80s and '90s, and it was great because, I mean, yeah, like we had some issues, but man, I mean, especially after the Russia went down, China was still almost starving. The Indians were still doing their socialism. Like there was nobody else, you know, like we were just, we were number one by default and we're still number one, but now um, it's, it's a game, right? Like there's a game that's going on. And um, I think that's why Trump got elected. Cause I think on some level we understand that it's a game mm. and it's really uncomfortable, 
you know, because we've always been the best looking and the smartest in the school. And now there are these new kids. And yeah, they're not like quite up to par, but you can see how like something might happen and we're not there anymore, you know? Mm -hmm. And so um, we still have like really high per capita. So, I mean, my family's from Bangladesh and I can tell you, we're just like, oh, hell no, we're not going back. I mean, mostly, you know, uh, my dad was a college professor in Bangladesh, so he had an okay job, you know, but he was just like, there's more opportunities for our kids in this country. So we say, and I still think like, you know, coming from Bangladesh to the United States is a good move. But I mean, you know, I've had students that were interns that are from India and I was like, oh, are you going to stay in the States? And they're like, no, I'm going back. Hmm. 30 years ago, that would sound insane. You know, hmm. like nobody does that back then. Like people, go, people that like study from China and they go, they go back. There are people who are expats whose parents worked in Hong Kong or Singapore and they're American and they're white and they're going to stay there because they're like, well, what are they going to do in America? You know, I mean, yeah, you can have, you can have a good job in America and you can have an okay living and you can be middle to upper middle class, although it's a smaller and smaller fraction, to be honest. But, um, I mean, like aside from Elon Musk, who's looking at the stars, you know, like, Where's our greatness? You know, like the Chinese, the issue with the Chinese is like you talk to them and they know that like they, they, they done fucked up for a couple of centuries there, <laughs> you know, but like the dragon's awakening, you know, and like, you know, they know what they got cooking. Okay. I mean, it's like, it, it's really palpable when you talk to them that they see hope and they see the future on the horizon for them. Hmm. And, you know, talking to Americans of my generation, I'm like, do we see that? I mean, we go to Dubai, like, what do we see? We see, we see the future and it's kind of scary and it's not like America, you know, mm. you go to China and like they have social credit and like, they're all busy, they're doing their thing. It's just, it, the world is much more diverse in a really deep way than it was 20 years ago. 20 yeah. years ago, we had a singular vision, you know, we don't have that anymore. Well, I definitely agree with you that there's a, there's a deep problem of malaise. There's a, there's a kind of cultural malaise of some kind in the U S and, uh, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I actually have not spent that much time in Asia, so I don't, I don't have the references that, that you have. So that's really interesting to hear that people from, whether it be China or India or wherever, you know, don't even really look to wanting to stay here if they have the opportunity to. Well, they vote their, they vote with their feet. Yeah. Right. And that's, I mean, if you're from an economic perspective, like material conditions and stuff, I mean, they're, they're showing you like what they think the future is going to be like and where they think there's like a possibility and like where there's activity and diamond dynamism, you know, um, did you, I mean, you heard that joke about like, um, you know, the cultural revolutions come to the United States, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. like a lot of Chinese people are like, you guys are crazy. You know, we did this and it didn't work. Right. You right. Know? They have a word, right? Uh, I don't know how to pronounce it. But yeah, Baizu, like, Baizu. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. It's like white, yeah, white liberal. I mean, yeah, I, I just think we're going through a phase. It's not a nice phase. Um, I think we're going to go further to the left in the early 2020s. And then eventually um, we're not going to have enough money. And, um, you know, you can only hate, hate like the white supremacist, like whatever superstructure so long, you know? I just, m my assertion, which I've been kind of saying for about 10 years is, we're starting to get really obsessed with white supremacy in the United States, just as it's kind of over. I mean, you, know? you can make a good case, I think, that the reason people are so sensitive to any little trace of possible white supremacy is precisely because white supremacy has been so effectively eradicated that we've become 
you know, if you if you think you even see a sl uh, a sliver of it, you freak the fuck out. Uh, and it, yeah. it's a testimony to how little there is. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I grew up in the 1980s, and like, I mean, I have a problem with some of my liberal white friends talking about how racist everything is now because Trump was elected. And I'm like, dude, it's just like. You know, I'll call it sand nigger, like all sorts of things. I mean, it's just like I knew what the 80s were like. They were fine. I wasn't like traumatized or anything, but they were way more racist. You know, right. every decade has been better. So, you know, if you're a white person, you can like have your delusions because like, I mean, unless you are racist yourself. And so, you know, you know, second. <laughs> Spam call. Um, cool. But anyway, um, yeah, I, I think like it's an interesting situation where it's like the post kind of a, in a way like what I said on the uh, Urbane Cowboys podcast. Postmodernism is correct in a certain way that we can create our own reality if we want, you know, up to a limit. And so that's what we're creating. Like I, I talk to young kids today, and um, sometimes you know we've had interns, and sometimes they like write copy for us and stuff, and they've interjected all this stuff about like white supremacy into like the 14th century. <laughs> And I'm just like, that's bullshit. It's just like, it wasn't a thing then. Yeah, I mean, the white, the, like the distinction between like white and black race wasn't even invented by then. I mean, it was there, but it wasn't very salient in the same way, right? You could say that, sure. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it didn't have the same meaning and the same like valence that it does today. So yeah, I mean, it's like basically our model for today does not work back then, yeah. you know? But these students, they're taught in a way in undergraduate where that's like, you know, all they all they can like frame the world in. So it's basically like, um, you know, I, I love history. I love to read history. I like to know about things, but um, today like they're brainwashing kids and most of these kids don't care that much anyway. So that you give them a little bit of theory that's totally wrong, but they're never going to check it, you know? But it's like, it's a little annoying for me having to like re-educate people. Cause I'm like, no, that's just like, it's like you have a little bit of theory, but that's it. Like it's all wrong. Like that's not how it works, you know? But um, I think like that's why, I don't know. That's why I'm like really frustrated with, with a lot of like the non-STEM areas of academia, you know, maybe like, I thought economics, philosophy, you know, a few other areas like that. Well, I think the kind of dominant, this kind of dominant leftist cultural politics that you're referring to is, I think it's kind of evolved to be the dominant framework or it's kind of been selected because it's really easy and quick to assimilate. And I think, you know, for like people who are pretty smart, but you know, not smart enough to like start a tech company or something like that, you know, it's kind of like a good mid middle level kind of like cultural theory where mm -hmm. you can pick it up in grade school, you know, and you can, and like a humanities degree can, can give you like a pretty good, you know, to the average student, you can get a pretty good kind of grounding in this like entire worldview that shows you're smart, that shows you're with it. Um, mm -hmm. It's quick to assimilate, but it's complex and illogical enough that there's like an infinite um, upper bound on the mental gymnastics and acrobatics that one can use to display their, you know, their um, sophistication. Yeah, I'm actually pretty good at um, social justice ease because I have pretty good <laughs> verbal skills. Yeah, exactly. I know, right. know more than those people. So, um, I, uh, yeah, I stopped doing it. My wife insists I stop doing it on Twitter, but I still do it on Facebook occasionally just because people don't realize that I'm joking. Um, and it's really fun because it's easy to pawn people, but... Um, no, it's I think actually, that's exactly right, though. It, I think it's a, it's like a it's a specialized um, niche for people who excel in kind of verbal fluidity to kind of like create their own um, empires, you know, to kind of uh, oppose or um, counter the empires of, let's say, like cold, hard intelligence that you find in, you know, like engineering or whatever.
Yeah, yeah. And, and like, it's really great when um, the best is, like, liberal white males. Oh, it's just so easy. It's just so great. And they, like, never, never tell you to stop. They're just, like, more and more. And then if I want a challenge, you go for white females because then they got the gender thing on you, you know, as a brown guy. And so we're going to see, like, this is kind of like an even playing field, and we'll see who's going to win this, you know? So it's, 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 it's a game. It's just a game. Right. I think it's a virtue of the game that it's it's kind of unlimited. Like, there is no, like, any, you know, I mean, I'm sure you are familiar with the idea of, um, you know, uh, the explosion that arises in a system where any kind of contradiction is allowed in. Like once, mm -hmm. if, there's, if there's any illogic in a perspective or framework, then it's going to potentially be infinite or unlimited in the ways that you can just generate new implications yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. because of that contradictory kind of seed in there. And I think that's kind of what it is. I mean, it's like, it doesn't really make sense from the bottom up. There are, it, there's poor logic built in. Therefore, mm -hmm. it's kind of very desirably infinite like there is no there's often no way to put a cap on it there's no way to resolve yeah. a debate but that's it's kind of a virtue if it's, that's, it's if not that's coherent or playing. it's not it's not coherent or contingent so i had i had a friend um the latest you know i have like a, i have a lot of correspondents in academia um, mostly geneticists um that are you know centrist center left type people that are kind of frustrated by the very far left and mm. he, was, he was asking me about like you know like someone was saying like well you need to read critical theory and i'm just like bro you're an atheist right and i'm like yeah or he's like, yeah. And I was like, well, I mean, do you, have you read a bunch of theology? <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, that's basically the same. Now, I have read some critical theory, and I actually have read a fair amount of theology because I'm just weirdly interested in that. Um, I still think it's word, word games, and it's more about, like, intellectual history that I'm reading it for. Um, but really, they're, they're very similar to me, you know? Mm -hmm. like, yeah, like, maybe Alvin Planija does, like, modal logic. You know, he reads Norman Malcolm. Okay, that's that that stuff is like really awesome in terms of it, their logical abilities. But most of like the middle brow theology is like okay, like whatever. Like if you didn't believe this stuff ahead of time, this is nonsense. You know, mm -hmm. a lot of the critical theory, um, the more ambitious critical theory is like that nonsense. Now the more the more less ambitious, the more modest critical theory actually does have some roles to play in critique. Like, it's just it went out of control. Like you can't. Basically, my idea with social issues, with, with social phenomena is you should be theory poor and data rich. I'm not saying go all the way towards like thick description, like these cultural anthropology people that refuse to make any generalizations, but you can't go super heavy on theory because we don't know enough, mm -hmm. right? But theory is easy. You know, Pascal Boyer um, says theory is information for free. Like, you know, so like these kids that are learning theories about colonialism, they apply it to the 13th century or they apply it to ancient Greece. What? You know? I mean, that's not even wrong. It's not even wrong. Right, but, right. You know, it's, it's, it's very frustrating to, like, live in a world where, you know, I, I was, when I was a little kid, I'd read, like, big, thick books on history because I was curious. And, like, now I meet, like, people that have graduate educations, and I think that they know less than I did of facts as a six-year-old. Hmm. They, just, they don't read any facts. Well, you can, you can definitely get a PhD nowadays without, without studying any facts. Any facts. I mean, there are, yeah, there, yeah, are, there, are yeah, there are whole programs where you can do that. Yeah, yeah. Um, Razib, you're a smart, busy man. I, I don't want to take up too much of your time. I feel like we've done more than an hour now. So, um, right. I mean, I'm, I'm enjoying very much talking with you, but I don't want to keep you. Was there anything else on your mind today that you wanted to, uh, that you're just dying to share with the world? Um, so I was actually curious, like, what's up with you? Hmm. Like, so so like, I know that um, um, my, a friend of mine, um, Professor Booty, 
was like tweeting at you and he's like, you know, what's your deal? Like, you know, like, what are you doing on the interwebs right now? Like, what are you doing on Twitter? Like, you know, what, what, I don't know. Cause I don't, cause I, you followed me. I followed you back. You like have some interesting interviews, but like, are you, are you being very experimental right now and just trying to figure it out? Oh yeah. Very experimental. I would say. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that was, that's my, yeah. Yeah. I, I think I, I think that people who are very smart today, who occupy positions of any amount of prestige or respectability are almost across the board, um, kind of asphyxiated by, uh, you know, how they're perceived by social expectations, just a kind of, um, expectation of a certain kind of seriousness. Mm -hmm. And I just think it's really, really constraining and really bad for everyone. And, you know, I don't see myself as doing something like really noble or, or heroic, but just because of how I am temperamentally constituted. Yeah. I, I find, I personally find kind of the mold of being like a very serious, um, prestigious professor. I, I find it very oppressive personally. And so I'm kind of using myself a little bit to, um, I'm kind of sacrificing myself a little bit. I don't want it to sound too like religious or, or heroic or anything like that. Cause it's not, I'm not thinking about it that way, yeah. but I'm basically, my, my view is kind of like, you know, I worked hard to get a platform as a kind of respectable academic and to have a, have a, you know, an audience and, and everything. But I find it so like the, the expectations to live up to a certain image, I actually find like it, it actually makes it impossible for me to think the best things I'm able to think. And so I need to basically, I need as a kind of existential necessity for myself to purposely kind of shit on my own image and public public perception to free me up to 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 just feel free basically and so i do a lot of silly stuff i do a lot of weird stuff i do a lot of um stuff that I pro i'm sure to like an average person expecting like prof professorial behavior a yeah. lot of the stuff i do just is at best incomprehensible and often like actively stupid or or even reprehensible but to me it's like i need I don't know. I need, I need like a certain right to be, um, stupid sometimes, or even be reprehensible sometimes. Um, and I feel like mo a lot of people, like not just me, but a lot of people at my kind of level of whatever, like, um, institutionalized, like respectability or whatever, like the world would be a much, much, much better place if everyone could, who had a kind of like prestigious position could be a little bit more relaxed on these fronts. And because I'm temperamentally well-suited to doing it, I'm just kind of like trying to fuck shit up, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, that, that was what, that was my perception. And you know, I have a lot of friends who are academics who are different privately than they are publicly because you have to put in a certain face, you know, a certain kind of like appearance of, you know, you were saying respectability, but it's just like you have to be a very serious person. Because you have a very serious degree at a very serious department with very serious department chairs and very serious emeritus colleagues. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so um, I, I find it quite amusing because I'm not a very serious person. I'm just interested in what I'm interested in. Yeah. You know? yeah. And so I don't, I don't try to put a fun. Um, I did see that someone keeps asking a question about my opinion of Steve Saylor, or Steve Saylor and J.F. Gerapi. Um, oh, so, on whatever you want, yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll answer that because I think he kept asking. Um, <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, 
Anyway, uh, so uh, Steve, I've known for like, I don't know, like almost 20 years now, I guess, on and off through the internet. Um, I agree with some of his stuff. I don't agree with some of his stuff. Um, so, I mean, that's about, I mean, really, I don't know what else to say. I mean, he's a fine person. Um, we haven't been as t in his touch more, as recently. I've been busy, like starting a family and stuff. Um, but that's the thing with Steve. Um, I follow his blog or Twitter every now and then. Um, and then JF. Yeah, the other guy, JF, um, I have seen him on YouTube recommended, I think, before. And somebody else, um, a mutual, a friend of mine, asked me what I thought of him. I don't know what to think of him. Um, I think he's a neuroscientist, right? But um, I don't think he talks too much about science. He's more alt-right. I don't know. Um, I don't have, like, very strong thoughts about it because I, I don't watch his stuff. Um, uh, yeah, I, I watched one of his things, like, a while ago because a friend of mine said do you think this guy is legit? And um, I'm just not very, I'm not super interested in listening to scientists talk on YouTube because I'd rather read a paper. And so it's nothing against that guy. I don't, don't know what he's talking about because like, I mean, I don't know how you, I mean, if you're in a field, if you're in an academic field, you want to read the paper and get into the supplements. That's how you engage it. You don't engage it by watching a YouTube. And so um, it's really difficult for me uh, to do that. I actually do get asked fairly frequently to watch science-related YouTubes related to genetics because my friends are like, oh, and they're, these are younger friends. They're like, oh, what do you think about this? And I'm just like, dude, this is just stupid. You know, first of all, it's usually stupid. Like, literally, like, they don't know what they're talking about. But second, just, like, me watching a YouTube on science when I could be, like, doing data analysis or, like, a formula, that's that's what I like to do. And so um, I don't have, like, a strong opinion about this JF Gareppi guy, partly because he's a YouTuber. Maybe if he was a blogger, it would be different. You know? I'm yeah. a blogger. I'll, I'll read people. But I don't want to watch them talk about science and biology because I know enough about that, you know? Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, there, yeah, there's definitely a certain real science you kind of can't really adjudicate uh, in, in, like, video format. <laughs> you want you want to read papers that makes sense to me in fact listening to you just now you kind of reminded me of something else i could say to you about what i'm what i'm currently doing because i mean i was just reflecting on how my answer to you is was really quite um vague and and diffuse and it's in large part because what i'm doing right now is i'm i'm trying to figure that out yeah. um I don't know exactly what i'm doing and i i shouldn't pretend to know exactly what i'm doing you know the in some sense like the the basic way to, to describe it with epistemological modesty is that I I was successful in pursuing an academic career and I landed in a kind of tenured position as a as an academic at a good university and it's just not what I thought it would be it's not what I wanted out of life it's not what I imagined academia would be like and it's not yeah and and I'm actually very temperamentally mismatched I think with with academia it's not my, it's not at all my vision of what the intellectual life should be and so I'm just basically grasping at straws for like any other way of doing it I'm looking at other possibilities other options other ways of doing it and what you were just making me think about when you were talking about youtube is i have this hypothesis right now that you know it's always been the case throughout history that intellectuals you know people who want to give most of their life's effort to just you know seeking some sort of truth for the sake of truth itself have to kind of like pay their way through life through some sort of auxiliary activity of some kind so historically teaching has been a very common activity associated with the intellectual life or like maybe you know um 
uh, yeah, teaching has been one of the most common. And, uh, you know, that gives rise to uh, our image of, of the academic as basically half teacher, half original researcher, whatever. Um, but it seems to me that now what you're really looking at is um, a lot of academics nowadays, half of their job is a bureaucracy, really. Like, mm -hmm. like what they're actually doing to pay the bills yep. is they're they're helping run they're pushing around paper for large higher education institutions and that's what they get paid to do and then you know on the side they get to do their research and they can beg for grant money from you know uh institutional funding bodies that basically force them to do more paperwork to pay their way through it and so it's like the way i see it is right now the dominant model of being an intellectual through being an academic is you pay your way through bureaucracy basically and an increasingly large load of bureaucracy in terms of your the over the the whole portfolio of, of your efforts but yep. it seems to me that there is an alternative model and i don't know if this is going to work i don't know if it's there yet but it looks like it might be and this is what i'm experimenting with is i think you might be able to do a model where instead of you paying your way through bureaucracy you pay your way through something more like entertainment hmm. and that sounds kind of vulgar. Like I don't want to be like a vaudeville performer or something like that. And I don't especially want to be like a, like, you know, uh, yeah, like vulgar YouTube personality type of thing, but maybe there's a, maybe there's a, a, a new form. Maybe there's something that I could create more organically and authentically where I put half of my labor into doing things on the internet that other people find fun or, you know, um, pleasing or that they identify with emotionally or whatever the case might be like, that's all entertainment, but I can, maybe I can do it in like a, a more high level intellectual way. That's actually complementary with novel original research. So like my, what I'm really trying to drive to, and I'm sure people who watch me on the internet would never be able to guess this. Like, I think a lot of people think I'm just like a publicity hound or I'm just like a bullshitter or something like that. But what I'm really trying to push towards it, maybe it exists is I do half of my, you know, I spend half of my work hours each day doing my novel advanced social science research. And then I spend the other half doing stuff that's public facing and it's fun and it's creative and it's weird and i experiment and people find it entertaining and and people maybe might be willing to pay uh in some way for that sort of thing over time um to me i'm temperamentally more suited to entertaining than i am to bureaucracy so if i have to pay the bills through some sort of non-intellectual kind of um auxiliary activity i wonder if i could do it through some sort of entertainment function that's one of my hypotheses yeah i mean i think i think one of the issues in natural sciences is you need a lot of labor you know, in the social sciences where you can do your own data analysis is a little different, right? Exactly, exactly. I don't need a lab. I don't need big grants. I have a bunch of free big public data sets that I could spend the rest of my life um, picking apart and analyzing and learning from and telling, you know, figuring out the knowledge that I want to figure out. I don't need, I don't really need permission. I don't need more money. I just need time is what I need. And so I, you're absolutely right to, to point out that, that that's um, part of my larger strategic reflection on it. I mean, some of the things that I do, uh, some of the things that I do, I just like do because no one else is doing it. Like a lot of the th things that I do, um, and I'm not monetized, not monetarily compensated, but mm -hmm. I feel like I have to do it. Um, uh, someone just asked. I'm actually like reading these now. Um, sure. Someone asked if I know Sean Last and the Alternative Hypo Hypothesis blog. No, I don't really know them too well. I know they've cited me, so I know a lot of these things that people mention. Because my friends will be like, do you know this person cited you? Do you know who they are? And I'm like, I don't know who they are, you know? And so I have, like, no problem with anybody 
on the YouTubes or whatever they're doing. But like I said, like I tend to engage the primary scientific literature because that's what I gain the most out of. I don't engage too much of derivative stuff because I'm already derivative, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, some of the stuff that I, most of the stuff that I'm doing on the blog is derivative, right? And so I don't engage much with that anymore because I would rather engage with the, pri- the primary literature in genetics is so active and so fertile and so fast moving right now. If you take your eye off it, I mean, it's actually been a problem for people that are writing books on it because, you know, it could take like six months to write a book and then blah, blah, blah. And then like overnight, the book is out of date, you know? So, um, you know, when you're asking me, oh, what do I think of Khan Academy? <laughs> I, mean, I think it's fine. Um, you know, it's kind of annoying that we have the same last name and he's also Bengali, you know, I don't know. But um, I mean, it's cool. I don't have a problem with it. I like the idea. Um, I like the idea of self-learning. I'm a self-learning person. I don't learn the same way as other people. Um, you know, I want my kids to self-learn. So for me, it's like, you know, when I'm listening to you and talking, it's like, you know, we just have to reflect on like, what is the life of the mind? And we shouldn't always just take for granted the way things are, because that's not the way that things have always been. So you're talking about how traditionally intellectuals have been, have been, um, you know, teachers, that's true too. But like Leibniz was a functionary. Uh, Spinoza was like a glassmaker. That's right. Yeah. You know, there, there are different ways you can do it. And, you know, um, you might have another job and this might be an avocation. And, you know, that's the way it was for a long time. You know, the music industry has gone through a lot of changes recently, um, you know, with free music. And that's having a lot of effects. But it also means that a lot of people are having to do things more, more outside of the system, you know. And so I think we do need to... We have a lot of data resources out there. I'm disappointed with how little the public is actually engaging with the data and like downloading R. Doing the old uh, one thing that I've tried to do on my blog for years is do general social science analysis mm-hmm. um, because I want pundits on the internet to start doing that. Mm-hmm. I haven't really convinced anybody that's a big pundit. And like a lot of them have cited me and read me. They know, you know, they just never, they just can't be bothered to actually do the data analysis before they open their mouth. It's really annoying to me, you know? Right, but it's a, that's a niche. I mean, that's a, a, a market opportunity, I mean, because I think you're exactly right. And that's the kind of stuff that I'm good at. And I, I've had some success blog doing kind of data blogging. And so that would be like one type of thing I would like to do much more of precisely because I think you're right. Like people don't do it enough. Yeah, yeah. Someone's asking about epigenetics. I got to answer this one. Sure. Um, I have a lot of friends who work in that area. It's a really hot area. It's a really big deal, but it's not as big of a deal as the press makes you think. Okay. If epigenetics was like overwhelming, was like going to overturn everything, we could never have done genetics in the first place. Like Mendelian genetics would not have worked. You wouldn't have been able to understand how the transmission worked if epigenetics was way more important. Epigenetics is important. It does have an effect on the margin. And there's going to be a lot of resources devoted to it because it affects some diseases and it has some marginal effects that are important. But um, just don't buy the hype. You know, it's important, it's real, it's not fake, but it's not it's not revolutionary, it's evolutionary. Anyways, we should probably, like, um, time this out. It was great talking to you, man. Yeah, man, it was um, really good to chat with you. Yeah, later, guys. Um, so I guess I just uh, disconnect? Yeah, you can just nick, nix your way out of it, no worries. Thanks again, man, I'll talk to you, I'll see you around the webs. Yeah, later. All right, see you, Rosie. All right, that was cool. He's a smart dude. I don't know shit about genetics. I like being made to feel and remember how little I know about something. But uh, yeah, I'm trying to think. That was good. I'll have to digest it. I think actually I decided last night after my after the live stream last night when I usually when the person 
you know, nixes the window and, and exits. I usually do this kind of, uh, I take a few minutes to give some parting words. But often at the end of these conversations, I'm so tired mentally that uh, I'm just like struggling to complete sentences. So I'm thinking about maybe in the future after the live stream guest leaves the window, I'll just also leave the window and that'll be that. But then I feel bad leaving you folks like that all abrupt. So I'll think about it. But uh, Mark says that Razib is insanely smart. I agree. He was a very smart man. I've interacted with him a fair bit on the internet, but uh, we never got to meet or talk. So that's one of the best things about this live stream is just like getting to actually get to know a little bit better people that I interact with sometimes for long periods on on Twitter and whatever. So yeah, it's always a pleasure to see what people are like you know, under the hood. Um, what else? So I think, thanks for the good questions, everyone. Active chat, as always. Some interesting questions were asked. I'm glad that he was a good sport and he was uh, reading the chat and taking some extra questions. I didn't want to drill him with like too many questions. That's why I wasn't asking him every question that you all were posting. But uh, Sam says, bring on some data bloggers. Um, yeah. I'll think I can think about some other data bloggers. What else? Um, oh, right. So for those of you who didn't hear at the beginning, I'll just before I leave you for the evening, I will. Oh, I'll give you some news also about future guests that are coming up. So, yeah, I'll, give, I'll tell you some future guests. I actually just got a new one confirmed today. We're going to do another live stream tomorrow, actually. So that I think will be like four days in a row. Um, I'll tell you who that's going to be in a second. Uh, before I do that, I'll tell you, for those of you who weren't here at the very beginning of the stream, I'm putting a lot of thought and effort into um, trying to uh, strategize the ideal model for kind of like, if I were to leave academia, whether it be through my own choice or uh, not my choice, um, how could I possibly design an intellectual life in which I basically do my own work as much as possible? And, but I'm also giving people such as yourselves um, stuff that you really want related to the stuff that I do that you're interested in. And so I've been asking people just straight up asking for input from my fans and uh, like my first set of patrons that I have on Patreon. And, uh, Based on all the feedback, basically what I'm doing now is one, I'm putting on Patreon a whole bunch of stuff from my hard drive, like previous writings, um, book manuscripts, uh, proposals, and just content, like the best content that's kind of sitting on my hard drive that I just haven't had the time to finish quite yet, but it's it's there and it's ready to be read by people who are interested in it. I'm gonna make that, I'm gonna make a bunch of that available on Patreon uh, starting today. And then, I'm also what I'm doing, and again, this is based on input. People basically requested something like this. Um, I'm going to do a monthly private seminar. It's going to be like a graduate level seminar. So just like you do in a PhD program, it's going to be student led or, you know, student led. It can be anyone, the participants, right? Um, I'm going to think of myself as the teacher, but really it's more that I'm just like the host, right? And then there'll be participants or students and it can be anyone and in groups that are no uh, bigger than five, five is going to be the maximum. So it'll be small groups. 
Um, once a month, we'll meet for two hours in a kind of private video conference, and people can present ideas on whatever they want, really. And so it's a kind of weird twist on basically what is the PhD or graduate level seminar format. And so, you know, think about maybe if you have ideas that you've really been wanting to work on. Uh, maybe there's like some big blog post you've been wanting to write, but you haven't been able to find the time or you're not sure, or maybe you want to write a book. Maybe you've always wanted to write a book and you're just not quite sure how to go about it. Maybe you don't have the motivation. Maybe you have a hard time holding yourself accountable. The idea of this kind of monthly seminar session is that you'll have a place, a focused place one time a month on a set schedule where other smart people, um, at the very least myself, will be able to give you constructive feedback on anything that you're working on really. Um, so it'll be a two hour session up to five people at, at a maximum. And yeah, you can give like a about a 15 minute lecture uh, or presentation. It can be really anything, you know, depending on what it is you're working on, uh, whatever sort of presentation or format fits your project and your goals. You know, you have the floor, and everyone will give you their undivided attention for about 15 minutes and you can kind of pitch anything you want. It might be an update on what you presented the previous month. It might be a totally new project. It could be anything. And then um, for everyone who does that, I will give my undivided attention and I'll give my you know best, most constructive feedback uh, to help you like with your projects. And also other people in the session will be encouraged to also give feedback or whatever. Thanks for listening, everybody. If you have any thoughts on that, good or bad, definitely let me know. Shoot me an email or you can DM me on Twitter. If you were really into that, you might leave a review on iTunes. That would be cool. Or if you were really, really into that, you might want to become a patron yourself. You can check that out at patreon.com slash jmurphy with no U. All right, cool. Talk to you later.